guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Romans chapter 7. That's where we're at. For those that don't know, we are just walking through verse by verse through the book of Romans in 2023. This is what we felt by God's grace that he was calling us to do this year, and so we're just trying to do it. Today we come to a pretty thick passage of scripture. Um, got a lot Got a lot to say. Hopefully we won't be here for more than two or three hours, um, but you've got padded seats, so I don't feel bad for you. Um, Romans chapter 7, I'm going to start reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and though the command and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure for we know that the law is spiritual but i am of the flesh sold under sin for i do not understand my own actions for i do not do what i want but i do the very thing i hate now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that it is good so now it is no longer i who do it but it is sin that dwells within me for i know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for i have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out for i do not do the good i want but the evil i do not want is what i keep on doing Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Verse 25, though, let's not forget that. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Please pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, help us today. Please help us. Come right now, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart that we might see wonderful things from your word. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray again. Amen. At the end of the Apostle Peter's second letter to the church, he knows that he's going to soon die, and he's just giving some closing comments. And he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. And speaking of Paul's writings, he says, there are some things in them, like this, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So did you know that the Apostle Peter said that about the Apostle Paul? That there are some things in his writings that are hard to understand. Now, I've heard that verse quoted often, and then usually when it's quoted, people quote that verse like, oh yeah, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, and so, yeah, whatever, let's read something else. But that's not what he says. He says, yes, there are things that are hard to understand, but it is the ignorant and the unstable that twist them to their own destruction. And he goes on, he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you not be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think 
almost certainly one of the things that Peter had to have had in mind when he wrote that about Paul's letters was this portion of Romans chapter 7. Um, it's, very, it's very bumpy sledding. Uh, there is a lot in it. But it, it, it's kind of like this, is that most of us, um, if we have something precious, we keep it somewhere safe. And we will keep it in literally like maybe a safe or a vault. And you might have to do, you know, uh, have some sort of a combination buttons that you hiss, hit or a little knob that you twist or maybe a thumb ID or, you know, who knows what they have nowadays but, um, or, 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 or something like that. But, but the point is this, is that we keep our most valuable possessions in a safe place and, and the more cumbersome the access, the more precious the treasure. Okay. And I'm telling you that, yes, there are some cumbersome things. We've talked about this before. It's like we don't get to just punt on passages of the Bible that are difficult. We, we have all of the Word of God because we need all of the Word of God. But let's take the time to work through some of the cumbersome things because I'm telling you there is treasure in here. There is absolute treasure. And it's so helpful, and I'm, I'm praying and believing that God is going to help us with it this morning. Now, the, the debate in this passage is not so much over what is being described. That's pretty clear. What is being described is somebody who is in a real battle with sin. It is a real struggle. The struggle is real, amen? Um, the, the, the debate isn't over so much what is being described, but who is being described. Is this a non-Christian or is this a Christian? Is this pre-conversion Paul? Before Jesus met him on the Damascus Road? Or is this post-conversion Paul. Let me just lay all my cards on the table right from the get-go this morning. I believe adamantly that this is post-conversion Paul. This is Christian Paul saying these things about his current struggle with the flesh and with sin that is ongoing. Um, I think because of the strong language that Paul uses here, some people conclude uh, that a Christian would never talk like this, but I want to say adamantly from the very beginning that, brother and sister, a Christian can't not talk like this. This is exactly how a Christian talks. Somebody who now has the Holy Spirit in them, but who still struggles with sin, and who still, uh, not, not constantly, but regularly, is momentarily overcome again by the flesh. This is exactly how we talk in our battle with sin. And what Paul describes here um, is, again, not just from a Christian perspective, but from a mature Christian perspective. This is Paul speaking now well over a decade, somewhere between, between 10 and 20 years as he, as he writes this, in his walk with the Lord. Um, again, just another kind of... Uh, Prefatory comment, just to kind of help set the trajectory as before we begin to walk through this, is that also what Paul describes here is undoubtedly a part, it is most certainly a part of the Christian life, yet it is not the whole of the Christian life. Okay? And I need you to hear me on this in order to rightly understand this within its context that it might be helpful for us this morning. Is that most Christians, I think we err in our understanding of sanctification, not because it's so much wrong, but because it is reductionistic or, or simplistic. We don't look at the whole of it. Okay, there is a reason why we have Romans 1 through 5. But there's a reason why we also have Romans chapter 6. And there's a reason why we have not just Romans 1 through 6, but Romans chapter 7. 
And beginning next week, we're going to move into Romans chapter 8. Again, we have it all because we need it all. And what Paul describes here, it is not the whole of the Christian life, but it is absolutely a part of the Christian life. The battle that he describes with sin, and I believe what he describes is even these, moment, these momentary uh, moments, that's repetitive, uh, where, where he is overcome by the flesh and, and, and still sins. It, it's, this is a regular part of the Christian life until Jesus, until Jesus comes back. And it's important that we, that we understand it. I want to say something else adamantly. And again, you're going to hear me say a lot of things that, I want you, I want, that I'm going to say strongly. And it's going to maybe sound like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth. I'm not. I'm just trying to be biblical. And again, we cannot be simplistic or, or, or childlike or in, in this sense or just reductionistic. But we need to grasp all of it if we want to, if we want to become mature. Um, but uh, but this, battle, this battle is real. And... And it rages on. And I want you to do something for me this morning. Would you just close your eyes? And I want you to picture yourself on a beach. White sand, gentle rolling waves, warm sun shining down on your skin, yet a cool breeze, and you just chilling enjoying it all. Now look at me. What you just pictured and what I tried to just describe, that is not the spiritual landscape of the Christian life. The spiritual of the landscape of the Christian life is much more akin to this. Go through the next one, Derek. Is there a next one? It's froze. Okay. There's more pictures. There we go. Um, of rubble and destruction. This was actually sent to me, and there's, there's a group of people that get these updates from a brother. He was actually here uh, at Mercy Hill back in February, at least one time. But he's over on kind of the front lines of the Ukraine, taking in food and supplies uh, with a team of people and also preaching the gospel. And I would argue that these pictures of rubble, um, remnants of what they were standing by there, and that first one was a remnant of a Russian missile that had been shot and then shot down by Ukrainian forces, craters left by bombs. This is what the spiritual landscape of the Christian life looks like. Meaning this, not, not, that, not that we can't enjoy times of God's presence and where his presence is strong and we sense him there and he's near. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying, brothers and sisters, it's a battle. And it's a battle, it's a dogfight all the way home. All the way home. And what Paul is speaking of here in, in, in this passage, again, is, is he's describing not just some former battle that he fought, but a current one. Again, somewhere between 20, 10 and 20 years into his Christian walk. And I say all that, if you're still with me, hang with me. Here's what I want to talk about this morning. Is that you will not become mature in the Christian life if you don't understand the nature of the Christian life. Are you with me? You, you won't become mature in the Christian life if you don't understand the nature of the Christian life. That it's not just a sandy beach where you can just chill out. There's bombs and there's bullets and there's rubble and there's missiles and there's craters. 
And this is what Jesus, this is the, the spiritual context into which Jesus has called us to take up our cross and to follow him. We never make excuses for sin. But we also don't lie about it. We don't lie about it. We don't pretend. And again, one of the reasons that I'm so thankful for Romans 7 that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that he's going to help us navigate navigate this a little bit. And so just kind of two pegs that I want to hang everything on. Again, there's so, there's so much in this passage. Matt Rao is preaching out of Mercy Hill West this morning, and we were just like kind of giggling. Well, laughing maybe. We don't really giggle, but, um, but just kind of laughing to each other on Friday. Like there's so much in here. And to cover it all in one message is, is next to impossible, but just kind of two pegs to hang everything on as we work our way through it. Number one, I want to look at, at um, how Paul, he does two things. He describes the struggle, and then he sets an example. And he describes, he describes the struggle that we might understand it and grow in maturity, understanding the nature of the Christian life, and then he sets an example that we might follow it. Some very practical things of how we go forward in the midst of this uh, spiritual landscape in which we find ourselves. But first of all, um, in him describing the struggle. Um, why does the struggle exist? Answer, because sin exists. <laughs> Should have got that by now in the book of Romans, right? Look back with me at verse 13. He says, did that which is good then br- bring death to me? Speaking of God's law, which is what we looked at last week, and again, the primary thing that Jonah said was that the law is not so much a cure, but it is a diagnostic. It helps us to see it, but it doesn't heal it. But did that which is good, God's law, bring death to me? And Adam and answer, by no means. And then look at this middle part of verse 13. It was sin producing death in me through what? Through something bad? No, through what is good. The reason that there's a struggle, the reason there's rubble and craters and missiles is because of sin. And we go back to Romans chapter 5. Remember, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, the, 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 the argument, the flow of thought that we've been looking at. We were born into Adam, which means we were born into sin. We were sinners by both nature and choice. And this struggle exists because sin exists. And sin is such that it is in us and it takes even good things and it produces death in us. There are so many examples of this. Again, that little phrase where he says, sin producing death in me, and here's the kicker, through what is good, and just take anything. God gives us food. Food is good, amen? I'm tempted to tell you about what I'm cooking for lunch today, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but food is good. Sin turns it into gluttony. Sex is a wonderful gift from a loving God. Sin turns it into pornography and adultery and fornication. Words, speech, the ability to communicate with each other is a wonderful thing from a loving God, but we turn it into gossip, slander, cursing, boasting. Rest is a wonderful thing. Sin turns it into laziness and self-indulgence. Power and authority are wonderful gifts given for the purpose of protection and service. Sin turns them into abuse and forcing others into servitude. And the list could go on and on. This is why we're in this struggle. Why, the struggle, why does the struggle exist? Because of sin. But not only why does it exist, but listen, where does it exist? And now the rubber begins to meet the road. The struggle exists 
in us. And just read the text with me here. Verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so now it is no longer I who do it. But remember, I'm saying, where does the struggle exist? Within us. Verse 17, but it is sin that dwells within me. And again, there's a key technical, I'll try to point out some reasons why I I so adamantly believe that this is Paul speaking as a Christian here, and not just as a Christian, but as a mature Christian. One of the biggest ones is just the tense of the verbs in which he speaks. He completely moves from from the verses that precede this, from speaking in the past tense to now into the present tense. And he doesn't say, like, here's one example. He doesn't say sin that once dwelt in me. He says sin that now dwells in me. That dwells within me. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. But then he makes this nuance. And so we're getting very nuanced here. Okay? But it's important. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Now we'll talk more about this. This, this idea of flesh here. It's not just the idea of your physical body. The physical body, it, it, is, it is wasting away. Yet the body is something God created us with bodies. And bodies are good. The body is not in and of itself evil. God created us with bodies, but just like um, sin does to every part of us, it taints every part of us. And now there is now this, uh, this flesh or this nature somehow woven into our bodies that desires evil still. And he says in verse 18, he goes on, he says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing now. I, I think that it's important to point out here that when Paul uses this language, and again, he says it's strong, and he says it's strong for a reason. Um, but like when he says there uh, in verse 18, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't think he's, he's speaking in terms of like absolute concrete all the time terms he's just said and he knows this because he wants us to read the letter as he's written it that back in chapter six we have been set free from sin we did die to sin chapter six verse seven for one who has died has been set free from sin it's not that he's always all the time just continually doing sinful things yet it's regularly this sin in his life he feels like he's again at momentarily thrown back into bondage. And here's the deal, like, is that not true from your experience as well? Anybody? It is mine. Let me tell you something. It, it's not like, you know, I, I think I used to think that like maybe once I'm five years into following Jesus or ten years in and now I'm a little over two decades in and, and plus I get the, the magical pixie dust of being a pastor sprinkled on me, Right? So that, that, that's got to count for something. There is no pixie dust, folks. It's a dogfight all the way home. And, and this language here makes perfect sense. Again, we, we don't want to interpret the Bible according to our experience. We want to interpret it within the context and look at the language and the flow of thought and, and, and what's being written, but this makes perfect sense. Feel this feel this all the time. Here's, again, what's, what's happening? I want us to sit on this for just a little bit and try to explain 
the reality in which we live. Um, I'm going to get a little bit technical here with some more charts for you this morning. So if you love charts and pictures, today is your morning. You're welcome. Um, here's, this would be a little bit of a simplistic or reductionistic way of thinking about the Christian life. Okay, So before Jesus came... We have the old way of the written code. Now that, that phrase, old way of the written code, that is from chapter 7, verse, what is it? Verse 6, where he speaks of the old way of the written code or the new way of the spirit. Okay, so the old way of the written code under the law, and then Jesus comes, and now there's this new way of the spirit. And is that true? Is there a difference? Absolutely. But here's what I want you to understand. There's more to it than that. Again, it's not so much wrong as it is reductionistic. Go to the next one, please. There we go. Um, would it help if I point at it? Um, this is probably a little bit more accurate. Like, oh, that's more complicated. Yeah, it is. But this is more accurate and nuanced in describing um, the Christian life, is that you have the old way of the written code, and then you have Jesus coming, and after he ascends, he pours out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and there, we are now in this new covenant because the perfect spotless lamb that all the other lambs pointed to has now come. You know, it's like John the Baptist said when he sees Jesus come on the scene, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he pours out the Spirit, and there's, there's this new way of the Spirit, but the old way of the written code... Here is the language, if you're going to look at the whole of the New Testament and the Bible and the way that it speaks of it, here's how I would frame it. The old way of the written code, here we go, it is dead and is dying. It is dead and is dying. It is passing away. It is not going to last forever. The new way of the Spirit, and for those of us that have been born again by the Spirit of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the Spirit of God living in us. The Spirit now lives in us, but we live in kind of this black rectangle here, to oversimplify it, where the two ages still exist. There is still a part of us that we are not in the flesh, but the flesh is in us. You see it in the Old Testament where God brings the nation of Israel out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in them. You understand? And, and that's what's happening. And he says, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he wants us to understand that. There is something good in him. It's the Spirit of God, but there's nothing good in his flesh. So that's where the struggle exists but then lastly, and very simply, I've kind of touched on this already, but don't miss it. Because again, I think Paul was being very practical and very pastoral and very helpful here. He's going to answer this question. Just what does the struggle feel like? What does the struggle feel like? Here's what it feels like. It feels like confusion. It feels like frustration. It feels like war. It feels like a battle. I mean, just look at, I mean, do you not love verse 15? He says, for I do not understand my own actions. Anybody? <laughs> for I, I do not do what I want. 
but I do the very thing that I hate. No, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Look, look at this, this war, this battle language down in verse 23. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 22 and verse 23. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I have been having a battle lately with my garage door and my garage door opener. And you know, they've got these sensors on the bottom, right? You know what I'm saying? And if you just so much as just bump one of those sensors, it just, here's what happens. I go to put my garage door down, and it goes, and then it goes halfway, and then I think there's like a loose wire or something, and it'll get down halfway near that sensor, and then all of a sudden something comes loose, and it's almost there, and then it just goes back up. And so I got to go over, and I got to touch the little sensor and try to get it right until this little green light comes back on, okay, and then I carefully step away, and, and I hit it, and then sometimes it goes down halfway, then it comes back up, and, and eventually, eventually I get it, but that's like, that's kind of what I think Paul's describing here. It's like, the thing I want it to do, it doesn't do. The, thing I, the very thing I don't want it to do, to go back up, it keeps on doing. And there are momentary, um, and again, work with me here on this phrase, this isn't like a technical theological term, but there are momentary like short circuits in us. In this age in which we live, as we're waiting for the return of Christ, and for him to come back and to make all things new. And to make all things better. And in the here and now, just know this, Christian, is that that short-circuiting, the doing the thing you don't want to do, not doing what you do want to do, that's part of the Christian life. Now here's the real question, though. Okay, okay, Eric, I'm with you. I agree. Still sin. I'm not going to lie about it. But what do, we, what do we do about it? Well, this is where Paul not only describes the struggle, but he sets an example for us to follow, and I think that this is very helpful. Because let me say what he doesn't do. What Paul does not say, and this is important to point out before we get into what he does do and the example that he does set. He doesn't go, ah, yeah, whatever. We all still sin, no big deal. It's what he doesn't say. Brother and sister, you, you've heard me say this before. We hate sin. Amen? It is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. We're against it. I know I've shared this quote with you before, but it's just my favorite. Like, it's my all-time favorite. Billy Sunday, you guys know what I'm going to say? He goes, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. I'll hit it as long as I got a fist. I'll bite it as long as I got teeth. And when I'm old and footless, fistless, and toothless, I'm going to gum it to death until it dies or I go home to glory. Just gum it to death. I love that. I probably shouldn't have done that. Anyway, that's, how, that's our attitude towards sin till the very end. Till the very end. But what is the example that Paul gives us? How do we fight in the midst of, these, of this kingdom of God? That, listen, it is so real. This, the kingdom of God, it is so real. And it is already, but it is not yet. And this is where we find ourselves. Number one, following Paul's example, I want us to cry out like Paul did. 
I want us to cry out like Paul did. Oh, don't, don't, don't miss this verse, brothers and sisters. I just, he's not saying this to be theatrical. He's, he's not saying this just to sound like some sort of a good orator. Look at verse 24, the apostle Paul walking somewhere between 10 and 20 years with Jesus, saved on the Damascus road, at some point caught up into the third heaven, told things that are too glorious for men to utter here on earth, and who knows what all he saw, but listen to him cry out and say, oh, wretched man that I am. Not just that I was. See, different, absolutely. But there is still a battle, and he, and he cries out. And I want to sit on this for a second. Brother, sister, Mercy Hill, like, we are so afraid to cry out. We are so afraid to let it be known that we struggle with sin. Why? Jesus died for you because you are a sinner. He outed you on the cross. He gives us all the freedom in the world to not just feel this, but to say this. To cry out. Again, hear me here. My press on you right now in this moment is not just when's the last time you felt this. I bet you felt it maybe even this morning, maybe last night. My press on you is, is, is not, when's the last time you felt this? I'm asking you, when's the last time you said this? And you said this out loud in front of somebody else. You said it out loud in front of your wife, in front of your husband, in front of your kids, in front of your brother, in front of your sister, in front of your coworker, in front of your boss, in front of your employees. That one of the ways that we go forward and we fight sin and we kick it, hit it, and gum it to death until Jesus comes back, is we do it by crying out at times, oh, wretched man that I am. We're, we're so afraid to cry out. You know, Jesus said to become like little children. And again, I'm not trying to twist that scripture. I think he's just talking about dependence, the natural dependence of a child. Children are not afraid to cry out. They're not afraid to cry out in the midst of my sermon. Right? See, they just said amen. Um, like, wh why are they not afraid to cry out? Because they know that's all they got. What else are they going to do? Well, I would just pose a question to you and I. What are you going to do? you got to cry out. And sometimes you got to cry out loud in front of people. I mean, James gives the most wonderful, helpful pastoral advice. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Pretty, pretty straightforward stuff, but we, we must cry out like Paul. Paul Brother says there's no shame in crying out. There's no shame in crying out. Secondly, not only do we want to cry out like Paul, but we want to thank God like Paul. And again, note, take all of this. Don't just take one and latch onto one. Look at, look at the whole of his example. Is that he cries out, O wretched man that I am, but in like the same breath, he asks this question and he gives this unbelievable answer. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you're like, oh man, it, 
It, yeah. <laughs> Who is going to deliver us? But he doesn't stop there. He gives the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now please notice this. This is of the utmost importance. Is that Paul is not just thanking God for what he's done in the past. He does that in other places and how precious that is. But that's not what he does here. He is thanking God for what he will yet do in the future. And again, verse 24, he says, Who will, who will, future, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I take that will to be very future, looking forward to the day when he comes back and makes all things new. I just love how real Paul is in this passage, that Paul is not afraid if people think that he says things that contradict each other. He's not contradicting himself, but he's just being real in regards to the Word of God and the reality of, and time in which we live in regards to these, to these two kingdoms. Um, this, this crying out to God for thankfulness it's not just in the past, it's, it's, for, it's for something that's in the future. And, and, and brother, sister, like who else other than the Christian, the disciple, can talk like this? That we should be twice as thankful as anybody else because we have twice the supply of grace from which to draw from. Are we thankful as we look back for what was done on the cross? Absolutely. But we also look forward to future grace that is yet to be ours through Jesus Christ. And this is of the utmost important. Christian, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, listen to me here. As certainly as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead in real time-space history nearly 2,000 years ago, so certainly will you be raised one day in real time-space history to a resurrection life where the very presence of sin will be no more. It is real, it is coming, it is ours, and as we wait for it, let's thank him. Amen? That's the example that Paul is giving. We cry out, oh wretched man that I am, but we don't stop there. We know what the answer is. It's as we sang a little bit ago. I hope that you heard the wonderful theology in that song. That we're fighting a battle that has already been won. That's not just Christianese, hyperbolic speak. That is real. That is the Christian life. It is our hope. And, and because of it, because of it, here's what I want you to understand. We should not lose heart. Look at me. We should never lose heart. And I say that because, because of sin, I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. I, I cannot tell you how many times since I have started following Jesus that I have lost heart, not just because of trials and tribulations that have come at me from the outside, but how many times I have momentarily lost heart over my own grievous sin. And how many times I've had to say, oh wretched man that I am, but praise be to God because of the gospel, it's not the only thing that I say. I'm able to say with confidence and with joy and with Paul, just like every single one of you can that knows Jesus Christ as your Savior, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, he's coming. Do not lose heart. Just in somewhat of a parallel passage, again, I love how real the Apostle Paul is in his writings. One of the things that I've been doing just kind of in my own devotional time lately is reading through the New Testament, not so much to just try to understand it within its context and, and, and the flow of thought, but just kind of reading it and just kind of as a survey and trying to kind of like glean a little bit of a biography of the Apostle Paul. And, and one of the things that I feel like I've missed for so many years as I've read the New Testament is just the degree to which Paul is so real. Like, I think we think about Paul all the time, like, just like big S on the chest, cape flowing in the wind, just standing on top of buildings, just going in, preaching the gospel one time, everybody gets saved and planting churches. That, that's, not, that's not how it was. And in, in 2 Corinthians, I just want to read a couple places. In, in chapter 1, he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, about the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's the Apostle Paul saying, we wanted to die. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not re rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Later on, in 2 Corinthians, in the same letter in, in, in chapter 4, he says, we, we have this treasure, this gospel, the Spirit of God in us, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But then listen how he talks, listen how he talks. He's not confused, he's just real. And this most accurately describes it. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. Well, remember, said, who's been confused? <laughs> he goes, we're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then just a few verses later, in verse 16 of chapter 4, he, he, he says this. And here's what I want you to hear. He says these wonderful words. He says, so... We do not lose heart. Do you hear me? You might be here this morning and you might be so despairing because of your sin and the consequences of what your sin has brought into your life and into the life of those around you, those you loved. Look at me. Do not lose heart. In Christ Jesus, there is always hope. Always, 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 always. We do not lose heart. Then he says this, and he uses similar language to what he says. Here. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. It is. <laughs> but our inner self is being renewed day by day. The old way of the written code, it's passing away. It's dead and is dying. But the new way is going to last forever and is being renewed day by day. So we want to cry out like Paul. We want to thank God like Paul. And then lastly, and we've talked about this a little bit already, but we want to know who we are like Paul. Know who you are. Again, this is a weird, I, I just want to put this out there. What I'm about to describe is you, you might not have a category for this. We've talked about this a bit before. You have to allow the Bible to give you categories for understanding the things that it wants to teach you. But look at verse 25. He says, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. When he says, I myself and the law of God with my mind, I, I take it to be 
completely synonymous with back in verse 22 where he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being and being completely opposite or not the same part of what he describes as the flesh or the old nature in other places. So he says, I, might, I then myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now hear me. I think there's been, this is very practical, and again, this is a little bit technical, but hang with me here. I know we're, we're getting ready to wrap up, all right? But I want you to understand this because I think it's important. Um, I was early on kind of, kind of taught that there are essentially two equal and warring me's within sight of me. The flesh and the spirit. And you'll see, this, you'll see very similar language in Galatians chapter 5. And I do admit that it talks about that they are, they are at war with each other, as he says here in verse 23. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about how the flesh desires the things against the spirit, the spirit against, against the flesh. But I, again, I, I, this, is, this whole conversation calls for nuance, okay? But there is one real you in Christ Jesus. Been born again by the Spirit of God, it's been united to Christ. Colossians 3, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Not just someday, it is right now. It is hidden with Christ and God. But there is, it's, and it's not you, but there's a part of you. <laughs> that again, you're not in the flesh, but the flesh is still in you. And again, that's why, I just verse 25, he says, so then I myself, there, there's a, Paul knows who he is. Despite his sin, despite his struggle, he knows who he really is in Christ. And yet with his flesh, he finds himself momentarily at times overcome by this flesh, but continues to fight it through giving thanks, through crying out, and through preaching the gospel to himself and reminding himself of who he is. Brothers and sisters, the outer self, the old you, it's wasting away. But the true you, if you've been born again, if you've been born again, you've been united to Christ and you are, and you are in him. Worship team, you can come up and I'll close. And I will close with something here. Maybe I could have just said this at the beginning and it, it would have pretty much summed up everything that I've said better than what I've done. But a quote by John Newton the famous hymn writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. Listen carefully. He says, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I thank God that I am not what I once was. Amen? If you've been born again by the Spirit of God, that is true of you. You might not be what you ought to be, or what you wish to be, or what you hope to be, but you're not what you were either. You've been united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And I want to give a really I get a specific invitation this morning. Okay? This has kind of been on, been on my heart this week to do. Um, is I'm going to be down front here over in the corner where I usually am, but even over off to the side more here in just a second. I'm going to ask, I should have prepped you guys for this, but I didn't, but just roll with it, okay? I'm going to ask Tom Hirschberger, he's going to be over in this corner. I'm going to ask Paul and Miriam Norker, if you would, I want you to go, guys to go back, go back to that back corner over there, if you will. And as we stand and as we sing, if you have lost heart, if you feel like you're in a season where you just lost heart, Maybe it's because of trials, maybe it's because of tribulation, but maybe it's because of your sin. Look at me. It's okay. This is common to the Christian life, but we fight it. And we fight it by coming to our brothers and sisters and asking for prayer. And so you decide this morning, but do not be ashamed, do not worry about what someone beside you, behind you, in front of you is, is thinking, who cares? They're just as sinful as you are. I promise you. But as we sing this morning, you come forward to me, myself, or Tom, or Paul and Miriam, and again, those guys, these guys are faithful. They're always at prayer on Sunday mornings, Wednesday mornings, and I promise you they will, they will pray for you and you will be cared for and shepherded well. But you come as we sing, okay? Let me pray. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that there is always hope in you. There is always hope. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Never. Momentarily, it, it comes upon us at times. But ultimately, we do not lose heart because we serve the risen Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for your resurrection life to come this morning and to strengthen all those who call upon your name. In Christ's name I pray, amen.